Hello and welcome to the Global Council podcast. My name is Thomas Krotowski. I lead Global Council's Global Macro Practice. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by my, by my esteemed colleague, Jens Prestus, who is an associate director in the Global Macro Practice and an expert on China. Jens, I think the whole world has been, uh, to some extent, surprised by, uh, by China's sudden exit from its uh, zero-COVID uh, policy. And I think most, in, including yourself, um, perhaps uh, thought that uh, you know Beijing's uh, or Beijing would keep its restrictions uh, for for longer uh, than uh, we now uh, see. Obviously, China and uh, given the size of its its economy uh, has uh, you know implications for um, for 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 the world economy, and so uh, faster reopening there will clearly have implications for. For growth and consumption, potentially around the world. Um, but maybe as a first uh, question, since you just came back from from Asia um, two days ago, um, can you give our listeners a sense of uh, where we are uh, in in terms of the numbers, uh, the pressure on hospitals in, in in China, and perhaps also to what extent uh, people are getting vaccinated, especially the, the elderly. Who uh, or many of uh, who have so far refused to get a vaccine? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Thomas. First and foremost, um, on the numbers, um, the, the short answer is that we can't uh, really trust them now uh, because they continue to go down uh, in terms of uh, case numbers, and that's pretty clear that that's not the case. Um, that is not happening. Cases are are going through the roof. Uh, it's impossible to know exactly. Um, uh, the 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 specific number, but uh, it's pretty unprecedented now. Uh, in which the anecdotal evidence is that what is happening on the ground, and especially the large uh, cities now, is basically what we experienced here in the uh, in in the UK when Omicron first first hit um, us. In which you go from knowing maybe one or two people who had COVID to suddenly having ten, fifteen, twenty friends and colleagues uh, who have COVID. That is. What people on the ground in Beijing are um, are saying now, so it's it's spreading uh, super super fast. Um, when it comes to hospitals, it's even harder almost to um, to tell because the government doesn't really give you that much information. So reading state media, for instance, won't show you um, or give you the real picture. And so again, uh, what to do there is to look for anecdotal evidence. Um, these things tend to uh, tend to flow through to social media in the end, even though there's probably some efforts to, to censor. So far, we're not really seeing huge pressure on um, on the healthcare system. Lots of people are going to fever clinics, calling uh, doctors, etc. But most of these people have uh, mild symptoms. So at the moment, lots of people have COVID. Doesn't seem to be really straining the health system uh, just yet. Um, so that is some. Um, um, some optimism uh, there, I would say. Um, on on vaccines, it's quite interesting uh, because we've come to know that, or the the common belief has been that uh, a lot of Chinese are, are vaccine skeptics. I'm sure some are, as some are in, in, in pretty much um, all over the world. Um, but what is interesting now, it, when you look at the data, is that we've gone from maybe 150,000 people getting vaccinated two weeks ago to 1.5 million now. So it seems pretty clear that people are responding uh, to the rapid rise in case numbers. And more importantly, they're responding to the government's decision to 
um, and zero COVID. Because in the past, a lot of and a lot of people, including old people, didn't really see the point of getting a vaccine because there was really no COVID in China, and the government basically told them, "Listen, there's not going to be any COVID here because we have this policy." So they thought, "Okay, but then there's no point in getting the vaccine." Clearly, that has changed now, and so a lot of people are are, are basically rushing to the vaccine clinics. Great. Jens, do you th maybe could you explain to our listeners um, quickly perhaps what restrictions already have been removed and perhaps when all restrictions that used to be in place will be re removed? Because it seems to me that uh, you know now a, a first batch of restrictions has been lifted um, and has caused perhaps a surge in, in cases, uh, but that might not be the, the end point of, of um, terminating the zero COVID policy. So could you give us a sense of the timing um, that might uh, also follow uh, follow the, the most recent lifting? Yeah, sure. So um, the restrictions that have been removed now, it's mainly about things on the ground in China. So in terms of uh, taking away uh, testing mandates, so you don't have to go and test yourself. And importantly, a PCR test uh, pretty much every day or very often at least. You don't have to do that anymore. They're taking away restrictions for using uh, public transport. You don't need to show a negative test, for instance. Uh, for taking public transport, you don't need to do the same for um, entering uh, most public venues, including cinemas and, and restaurants, etc. Um, in, in the beginning, we saw this very patchy uh, changes to, to policies uh, because uh, different cities responded in a different way. Um, but last week or so, then uh, the government came out with some more clear guidelines which tried to basically na nationalize uh, the change in policy. So um, it's mainly now about um, making it easier for, uh, for Chinese people to, uh, to move around and, and um, perform daily economic activities, basically. Um, on the border front, we haven't seen uh, too much yet. So obviously, there was a, a loosening of the quarantine restrictions for, for inbound travelers um, earlier in, um, in November. Uh, which was basically the first big announcement of of changes to um, to restrictions. Um, we've seen Hong Kong has basically started that now. So uh, in Hong Kong, it's uh, almost a free for all. Uh, you have to do one PCR test on when when you land, but if that's negative, there's no more restrictions. Um, and mainland China will probably gradually start to follow that lead too. Um, so we've seen um, we've seen Hong Kong now, uh, or rumors that are. They're, I'm pretty confident that those are true, uh, that at some point um, in January, probably early January, we'll see uh, restrictions or border controls between Hong Kong and mainland China being completely removed. Um, that makes sense because um, you will probably want to do that before you do mainland and international borders. Um, and I also think that um, the government, the policymakers are thinking about how they can facilitate um, Chinese New Year in late January to try and make that as a normal Chinese New Year as possible for the first time in three years. I think that would be um, something that would be a significant sentiment boost. So my expectation is that by late January, uh, we'll probably see pretty much all restrictions having been removed. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if the, uh, the, the remainder of um, quarantine restrictions for, for inbound travelers to the mainland will be removed by, by end of January too, which basically leaves us with an official um, end to, uh, to zero COVID. The lifting of restrictions in the United States and Europe led to a surge in demand, you know, people uh, being able uh, to go out again into 
into restaurants, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, um, optimism uh, or spreading optimism leading to, to higher, higher consumption. Um, do you think the uh, lifting of restrictions uh, will now, you know, lead to a uh, similar effect in China, perhaps uh, to an extent that we see growth, which was relatively sluggish uh, for Chinese standards in 2022, uh, rebounding perhaps more strongly than we uh, believed in the past in 2023? Yeah, so that's the um, million-dollar question now, I guess, um, to, what, uh, to what extent removing restrictions will, uh, will trigger a rebound. Um, and I think... Uh, Arguably, there will be an initial um, an initial rebound that we will see, probably not in in the first quarter or even in December. Now, if you look at uh, photos people are posting on social media from streets of Beijing, there is no one on the streets. Uh, so people are clearly being cautious uh, now as cases are rising very fast. Just basically what has happened in uh, in the rest of the world too, uh, when they removed restrictions, some people aren't aren't too fussed, I uh, think it's okay, they will go out, go to restaurants, etc. But a large number of people uh, will remain somewhat skeptic. So just removing the restrictions is not going to be something that will automatically lead to lead to a rebound. And I think they will take uh, some time, probably um, a couple of months, if not more, until uh, we, we really see to start to see an improvement in economic activity, especially on the um, on the con on, on the consumption side. Um, I mean, and you could argue that um, the government now has a lot of extra incentive to sort of um, trigger this rebound to the, the latest data we got um, earlier this week on, on retail sales from November was um, horrific, uh, to put it mildly. Um, and um, there's a lot that needs, there's a lot of catching up to do, um, which um, which we'll see uh, gradually um, as, uh, as restrictions are loosened. You mentioned uh, the government uh, response uh, to perhaps that you know sluggish uh, consumption. The Central Economic Work Conference had just uh, finished its session earlier today. Uh, I think it was the first session since uh, the National Party Congress. Um, what do you think are the central or the key messages from this meeting uh, about Chinese economic policy now going into 2023? So, um, what has been very interesting um, over the last few the last few months, and, and including also um, the last uh, leadership meetings, so the Central Economic Work Conference, as you mentioned, um, just concluded today um, on December sixteenth, and uh, also the Politburo meeting um, that took place earlier this month. They both really focused on the need to stimulate consumption and to increase domestic demand. Obviously, this is not something new. We've heard the government talk about this uh, many, many times. Um, and as we know, they've struggled to really do something about it. So they have good intentions, but they, they don't seem to be able to implement the policies needed uh, to actually uh, stimulate demand. My feeling is that this year they um, will probably do more than in, the, um, than in the past in terms of actually implementing, announcing policies that, that will lead to an increase in, um, in um, domestic demand. And that is mainly because 2023 will be, will be very different from 2021 when China had the first big sort of post-COVID rebound in the sense that now we still have property markets um, in the doldrums, which I'm sure we'll come back to later. You also have weakening external demand. And these things will also ultimately weigh on domestic demand. 
uh, in part just because so much um, wealth is tied up in the property sector. So when prices are falling, people will um, ultimately be a bit more cautious about spending. So um, what we've seen now is um, a lot of talk about trying to boost consumption. We've seen some local governments um, announcing uh, that they will hand out vouchers. They've done that in the past, not having a huge impact. Uh, what was notable uh, was in the, um, the readout today uh, from the Central Economic Work Conference was the focus on raising um, incomes. Um, and that is the key, the, the key issue, because in the past, uh, we've seen most policies basically focusing on supporting the supply side and assuming that if you support the supply side, then the demand side will follow. But usually it's the other way around. Uh, and now they, it seems at least potentially that they are acknowledging that they need to really make sure that people have enough money uh, to spend that is not just easy to spend and there's enough goods to consume, but they actually have the means uh, themselves. So I think that is um, that is a very a positive trend and something that's a bit different. Um, and I think um, it's something that uh, has been coming a long time. We've seen a growing number of uh, influential policy advisors who often speak in whole study sessions at the Politburo meetings, basically calling for um, cash handouts or stimulus checks being sent out similar to the US did um, uh, in 2020 and 2021. So I think that's the uh, the big one to watch in terms of the policy front um, in 2023. That's really interesting um, because obviously in the United States uh, in particular, we had uh, those uh, stimulus checks which were be probably quite um, a reason for why uh, the rebound was so strong in the United States. Perhaps also a reason for why inflation now in the United States um, was quite high, even though it seems to have been uh, uh, have been peaking. Uh, knock on wood. Um, but so in in the case of China, um, my sense is that of, of course a lot of uh, wealth at least is tied up in the property market. And uh, as you just mentioned earlier, uh, China has seen quite uh, a few uh, troubles in in that uh, particular sector and there have actually been calls including from multilaterals uh, for China to support more uh, that sector in order to uh, get growth and consumption also uh, back on back on track so where do you see the government supporting or you know that sector perhaps you know cleaning up uh, some of the the legacy Assets that might still still be there, but but basically making sure that um, that um, the sector is not holding back uh, growth and consumption. Yeah, so that's um, uh, the second uh, million dollar question, um, if you will. And um, just to add one uh, one more point on the on the consumption side and the um, and the stimulus checks, it should be noted that this is uh, to do that is is very non-typical for Chinese policymakers. They don't particularly like to just give people money without knowing exactly what it will be used for. And so if they decide to do something like this, it would be a break, uh, a significant break from from policy orthodoxy. But I still think the likelihood for, for that happening in, uh, um, in the next years is higher than it has been a very long time. Um, when it comes to the uh, to the property sector, this is very interesting. And, and it was also, I was um, very, um, very, very keen to, to follow the the readout from the Central Economic Work Conference, in part because uh, Bloomberg reported uh, last week uh, that they uh, expected or they had heard people saying that um, the government will basically call an end to uh, property sector reform, that they would um, abandon the phrase houses are for living in, not for speculation, um, and that they would say that they 
more or less accomplished what they wanted to accomplish uh, when it comes to deleveraging um, in the sector. And um, I always thought that was that sounded a bit odd that there would be such a huge about face on that, and that they would um, clearly they're not done uh, with reform. So it would be somewhat odd, and uh, we saw now today from the readout that obviously the houses are for living and not uh, not for speculation was still there, um, and not much had changed. Um, there seems to be um, quite a bit, quite a big of a change uh, when it comes to um, offering more financial support for the developers, but that is still earmarked for delivering homes, which is the priority, as in prepaid homes, which is the priority, uh, priority number one for the government. This is what they're focusing on because they don't want to have like, millions of people um, basically having paid for their properties and they're not being delivered. So. Pretty much all financing financing support. There is definitely more financing support, and we're also seeing importantly that the banks are more willing to actually uh, lend to the developers. Uh, in the past, and this is based on the conversations we've had with um, with people in the banking sector um, in China, including in private banks, where they in the up until three weeks ago they said we have no interest in lending to these developers because it's too risky for us. It doesn't matter what the government is saying. Um, and this was also true for, for state developers. That has changed over the last three weeks. Uh, and the banks are now saying, we don't really have a choice anymore. We have to increase lending to uh, to these developers. Um, so that has definitely changed. But again, the important thing is it hasn't changed the ultimate motive or strategy for the government. The, uh, the focus is still on reforming the sector, basically shrinking the size of the sector. They want to consolidate um, it around. Um, certain number of, of state-owned enterprises and uh, and some private ones but the the ultimate goal of um, reducing leverage and reducing the size removing speculation allowing property prices to fall all of that is that is still there and um, even if financing support is increasing to make sure that uh, homes are um, are delivered so I don't see any big changes there and we saw the same uh, in the readout uh, today from the central economic work conference where they they basically said that uh, the environment in the, for the real estate sector has changed. Uh, and this was something the, um, the Shanghai branch of the People's Bank of China said last week during a meeting with uh, five developers and some uh, financial institutions that you guys, you developers, you need to adjust to this new environment. Uh, we can't continue to support you forever. So they seem to be um, making that very clear that things aren't going back to normal, even if some financing support are increasing. So I just try to um, fully understand that. Um, in other words, you're saying that um, the government will maintain its longer-term target in reducing the size of the sector or the leverage in the sector. But actually, in the short term now, what we will see is, and again, an adding of leverage in the sector, uh, which sounds a bit contradictory to me. That they're adding le and leverage. Yeah, that the, that there will be again lending to developers. Yeah. So the um uh, the key thing there is that all of that lending is earmarked for um for two or three specific purposes. So um finalizing uh, stalled projects, uh, so home, um, development projects that uh, the developers didn't have any funding for in the past, where the bank said we're not going to lend to you anymore. Um. So, because the government really wants these homes to be finished because they have been paid for already by like a significant number of uh, of households. 
Um, and two, uh, they're offering more financing for the perceived stronger developers, mainly SOEs, uh, so that they can uh, buy assets from the weaker ones. Um, and they're also allowing some of this new financing to be used to repay debt, mainly onshore debt. But also now, to some extent, they're also allowing the developers to um, raise funds abroad from offshore units of uh, the Chinese bank, so they can also repay uh, US dollar debt. Because they're um, even though the focus is on the onshore uh, debt side, they're still concerned about uh, the, basically the future of um, of Chinese developers or other Chinese entities being allowed or being welcomed by, by, by foreign investors and then um, lending to them. So, um, yes, there might be uh, more lending, but it's for very specific purposes that you kind of need to do um, unless you want to um, to see a complete collapse um, in the sector. Um, ultimately, again, the important thing to remember that none of these things seek to really address the demand side. And so we've seen lots of local governments uh, offering uh, support measures uh, to increase demand for for properties um, in the sense that they've lowered down payment ratios, they've re- lowered mortgage rates, etc. But it hasn't really convinced people to get into the market again. And that is because the central government is um, still says that the property party is over, basically. And so at least the speculators are thinking, it still seems risky, even though it might be cheaper for me to buy a property now in, in some province in a tier two city. Um, so um, that is still the big thing. And you won't have a turnaround, which I see some people talking about, unless the demand uh, comes back on track. And I don't see that happening simply because the government doesn't really want to return to the, the good, bad days, if you will, with excessive growth. Interesting. Now, I want to come to um, thinking about the global impact of uh, the removing of the zero COVID restrictions. Um, Clearly, China has been quite isolated from the rest of the world for the past three years. Um, And and now gradual, relatively uh, fast uh, reopening of China, uh, perhaps with a surge in demand in China uh, itself, will will have an impact, of course, on on a world economy that is, on the one hand, you know, um, affected by high rates of inflation, especially in advanced economies, but also by by perhaps falling uh, demand in uh, in the United States and Europe uh, as recession fears are are growing. Can you perhaps uh, give me your sense of? Uh, first of all, where the reopening will, uh, what what the reopening will mean for, uh, you know, for Chinese foreign policy and perhaps also its relations with the United States. Yeah, so I think um, this is kind of China uh, reuniting with the world, if you will, that they're opening up and. Uh, relations will will come back online. You can say that it's reuniting with a uh, divided world, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, it has to engage with with all the um, big economies, including the U.S. I'm um, somewhat bearish on um, um, on relations with the U.S. I don't really see uh, any improvement there. I think relations will continue to uh, deteriorate, even if uh, Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden sit down and have so-called constructive um, conversations, which is what they're usually being described as. Uh, I think we need to just look at what is happening on the ground. Uh, you'll see much more 
uh, you'll see a continuation of, of the UN's announcing uh, restrictions um, on um, on Chinese um, companies, putting more companies on the um, on the different lists uh, than they have that uh, restrict U.S. exports to these companies. I'm not sure if China will retaliate uh, because I don't really see how they can see that that's going to lead to anything good. Um, it will ju just make things worse. So I think they will just look the other way. But overall, relations with the U.S., I don't really see that um, improving, uh, even if it looks like Xi Jinping and Joe Biden are being nice to each other during some bilateral um, meetings. Also, since uh, the National Party Congress, I, I think there's a, a sense that, uh, you know, she is now firmly in control of government, of economic policy making, um, and so that his view might perhaps be a more an insular one of China. So, to what extent, you know, perhaps is that also you know influencing the chi China's trajectory and how it engages with the world? Uh, now that you know it's starting to reopen, so I think that um, uh, he's been um, he's been pretty active now over the last couple of months. Uh, Xi Jinping, in terms of engaging with uh, with state leaders, uh, he's met with a number of European leaders to that um, in Beijing, but also during the G20 meeting, uh, and he just had his uh, his big visit to to the Gulf, um, and those uh, those two. The, the EU and, and, and the Gulf states, uh, if you will, those two economies. It seems to me that that is where Xi Jinping looks to be um, doubling down or, or, or directing his attention. Um, obviously, he's focusing on, on uh, his own neighborhood, Southeast Asia, East Asia, that's very important. But beyond that, um, I think um, what Xi Jinping will, will seek to do is to uh, do everything he can to um, improve relations with the Europeans, uh, he's clearly seeing that a lot of EU member states are not willing to just bandwagon on um, on US policy on China. Yes, they will align on some things, but not everything. Um, and I think he sees an opportunity there to to try and um, divide and conquer to some extent, um, and to try and at least keep relations warm with uh, with especially Germany and some of the other big member states. Um, and if you ask me, I don't think it's unlikely that um, he will um, try to get the uh, the um, comprehensive agreement on investment back on track. I think um, this is me speaking without knowing exactly how the, the Europeans will respond, but um, I think the Chinese side um, might be willing to make some concessions and maybe removing um, sanctions on some ministers of, of the European Parliament um, to try and, and, and get that agreement ratified uh, and get that back on track because that would be a great geopolitical win vis-a-vis uh, -vis the US, uh, but it would also be... Um, also be super positive long term um, for the Chinese um, uh, economy, um, in part because um, China is now seeing a steady, steady number of uh, firms pulling out. They're a bit worried about how foreign investors see China. Um, and if you can get that agreement over the line, it will probably uh, bring some, um, some calm back uh, to that and perhaps convince some, some firms, especially the European ones, that uh, it's worthwhile sticking in uh, sticking in China, um, and I think we can maybe come back to that later. But um, I think it's important for for China's own domestic considerations too that the losing out on a lot of foreign direct investment could be uh, could be pretty negative. Um, and perhaps just quickly on the uh, on the Gulf states and uh, specifically Saudi Arabia, um, it's pretty it's pretty evident that obviously the, the Saudis are. And you will know more about this than, than, than me, Thomas, given your focus on the Middle East. But 
uh, that the, the Saudis are uh, a bit fed up with the U.S. Um, and that they're, they're keen on, on improving relations with, with China. Um, I think it was noteworthy that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative was mentioned um, so many times um, in the, uh, the readout from that meeting. Um, and uh, yes, the, the BRI as we know it in terms of lending to uh, lots of commodity-rich um, countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, that might be over um, uh, because it's proven pretty hard to get your money back uh, when, when the global economy uh, is not going so well and demand for these commodities are slowing down. But having access to uh, critical raw materials, to energy, access to important um, ports in the world, all of this you get in the Gulf, that is still of great relevance to, to China. And I think you'll see uh, the BRI uh, to some extent being revamped a little bit with a different set of um, focus areas. And I think you'll see a lot of that in, in China's relations with, uh, with Gulf states. I would like to come back to your, um, to your thoughts about the comprehensive agreement on investment with Europe. Clearly, there are significant concerns in, in, in Europe uh, about China's relationship with Russia, uh, especially uh, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to Ukraine. Um, perhaps uh, there are questions to what extent uh, China is perhaps not explicitly, but still implicitly supporting uh, Russia's uh, campaign there. So I'm, I'm wondering whether China would be, if you will, willing to um, take a step back from its, uh, its uh, you know, relationship with Russia in order to get such an economic agreement with the Europeans over the line. So that's, um, um, that's a tough one. Uh, because uh, my feeling, there's always been there's been lots of rumors about um, Xi Jinping um, reconsidering his relationship with with um, uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin. My feeling is that I don't see them. I, I think it will be hard for them to really sort of pull away from uh, from Russia, just because when you're in in what Xi Jinping calls it a prolonged war, basically with with the U.S., uh, you don't want to alienate um, your basically your biggest and, and most important ally, uh, which is Russia. Uh, it's such a great um, um, sort of counterpart for China to have vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the US. And so, yes, um, you might see some things in terms of language um, that China might be willing to try and show that it's uh, pulling a bit away, that it's putting more pressure on uh, the Russians to try and stop the war um, in Ukraine. But if it comes to really officially distancing itself from away from Russia, I think that would be hard for, um, for Beijing to, to accept, even if that could um, possibly lead to, uh, to movement on, on, on the comprehensive agreement um, on, the, on investment. I think that would be a tough one. You also mentioned the Middle East. Um, I think from a European perspective, especially uh, China's uh, slow economic growth this year was on the one hand, perhaps a source of concern, but on the other hand, also, um, if you will, a positively contributing factor to energy prices in in the world, but in Europe in particular. Um, uh, you know, oil, the oil price, despite the price cap, um, actually fell to you know uh, an annual low uh, just recently. Much of uh, the LNG growth that we have seen in China in recent years, uh, much of that amount actually went 
as additional supply to Europe, which really helped in the second half of the year to fill up uh, the storage capacity and fill perhaps the gap uh, that Russia has left. So I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are about the extent to which China's lifting of COVID restrictions will see, you know, a really significant uptick in demand for energy and as a result could actually make uh, the year 2023 much more complicated for Europeans. Now in particular that Nord Stream 1, which was still uh, operational throughout most of the year, has now been, you know, officially or fully cut off since, since early September. Uh, and so basically taking away that one one source of, of, of gas uh, that that you was able to rely on as well uh, to refill its gas storage. Yeah, so I think the, that's um, um, yet another very important question that I think a lot of people are um, are following, including uh, our friends at the, the US Federal Reserve and, and European Central Bank in terms of what it means for, for inflation. Um, I think at the moment, um, it's hard to say because it will depend on how Chinese policymakers respond, what kind of policies uh, they announce, and how they intend to try and uh, create a sustained rebound. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think they understand that you you won't have a sustained rebound unless the Chinese consumer comes back online. Um, and so they will. I'm pretty confident that they will try to um, try to really do their utmost to 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 get the Chinese consumer to spend again. Um, but it will depend um, if they actually manage to implement that. As we said before, we've heard so many times in the past how they intend to try and increase uh, domestic demand, uh, but they haven't really implemented the policies needed to do that. If they do this year and we see a significant rebound in Chinese demand beyond what we'll see just because zero COVID restrictions are gone, then that should lead to a significant increase um, on not just manufactured goods uh, outside of China, but also uh, on energy products. Um, and if they also combine with that um, more support for um, infrastructure investment, for instance, which is, they're very good at, they've done many times before, uh, if they do that as well, um, you'll see another um, source of, of increased demand for, for a lot of commodities, including energy. So it will depend very much on how China responds. If they kind of allow, we've seen now, uh, lots of numbers being thrown around in terms of the, the government's GDP growth target for, for next year. I think a lot of people are, are are now coming to some agreement that the government will focus around 5%. That is not that much uh, when you think about that the economy this year probably won't grow faster than maybe 3%. Um, so to if you have that low base and you're aiming for 5%, that means that uh, activity in the Chinese economy won't really rebound that much. So if you think about it in that sense, and also knowing that uh, property investment probably isn't going to really rebound, and you'll see activity in that sector also remaining subdued, um, it's not necessarily the case that you'll see a, a huge uh, Chinese, um, um, a, a huge increase in, in Chinese demand for um, for energy products, and that, that in that sense, not necessarily will be a big problem for for the Europeans. But again, it will all depend on on, on how Chinese policymakers. Um, decide to support the economy, I guess, next year. Fascinating. Uh, it seems to me that um, obviously there are many, many unknowns that, uh, that we're dealing with at the moment, but I think one conclusion from our discussion is that obviously 
China's uh, uh, closer uh, or opening uh, uh, post-COVID uh, post, uh, uh, will clearly have implications for, uh, for China, but also for, for us in, in Europe, in the United States, and, and elsewhere. Um, probably the, the net effect, if you will, between uh, additional demand and, and perhaps um, higher commodity prices, it's probably too early to, to tell, uh, but certainly something that we'll be uh, following very closely. Thank you very much, Jens. Uh, it was a pleasure to uh, talk about this uh, with you today. And uh, I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed uh, this podcast. Thank you very much uh, for listening to the Global Council podcast. And goodbye.